This is Transcend with Nat, where we're discovering our higher purpose and sharing stories and awarenesses along the path of transcendence. So today on the show, we have Michael Hayes. He is a spiritual counselor and a seminar leader and workshop leader. Uh, he's known as the counselor's counselor because he assists others who assist millions of people. He's a very gifted spiritual healer with spiritual sight. He has the ability to assist others in clearing all sorts of uh, things from their consciousness. Anyway, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So just want to get into a little bit of uh, your becoming where you are. So were you raised spiritual or religious or what, what was your no, background? I, my background was no religion. My parents were atheists. My father was a scientist and an engineer. And so how did you move from that, which is very different than what you do now, into this? What was the beginnings that got you on this path, so to speak? Well, when I was young, I had experiences that were very different. When I was um, a young boy, probably about seven years old, I went with my family to an event at some building uh, up in around Berkeley in California and in the back of this building we, we walked out and there was a cemetery and there were gravestones and I had never seen anything I didn't know what it was and as my father was talking about what it was he pointed down to a plot and the headstone and he said well that's where you'll end up too that's where everyone ends up that's the ending of life that's it well that had a disturbing effect on me and I remember we came home and I was put to bed and I couldn't stop sobbing because for me I looked at if that was so why do one more thing in, in life because if no matter what I did it all it could only amount to that it left me feeling a hopelessness and a despair I didn't know what to do with and then my cr crying just became so uncontrollable and my sobbing and at one point in my sobbing suddenly there was like a popping sound in my head. And it was like suddenly I was sort of above my body in a way, but it was in this immense light. And then my, my consciousness or me, whatever it was, started to move like going up an elevator into brighter and brighter light, like going through levels of light. And I went up and up and up and up, and finally it kind of exploded into something that was so, was the total most brilliant light I could ever imagine. And in that light, there was such so much love and so much a sense of this is who, this is really what's going on. This is really who I am. This is really what life's about. It just suddenly, and I just, this peace came over me. And I knew I would never die. And I knew death was not real. And, uh, and I can't remember how things change, whether I, you know, came back to normal awareness that night, but I knew from that day on I was never afraid of death. And I've had three times in my life where I've been, at the, you know, like I'm dying now. And it's always been interesting to me that the, I wasn't afraid. I was like, oh, so this is death. And each time I was kind of, kind of miraculously rescued from the actual dying. And, but I think that's really started a change for me. It was a big part of the change of my perspective. Because even though I was being told the world is this very materialistic, scientifically based place, there's no God, that whole side of life was denied me. There was a deeper questioning that, that got ignited in me called, what is really going on? And uh, in my teenage years, I started thinking, questing, and doing yoga, and reading books that were uh, just met more metaphysical. And I think I was probably 16 or 17, I read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. It's a great book. And when I read that book, it was so profound for me because I knew I had done those things. 
Like I knew it more than I was sitting there. I knew I had done the yoga thing. I knew I'd done the asceticism. I knew I had done the search for enlightenment. And it was so real to me that it, it shook me. And then, oh, shortly after that, I, I was um, finished high school and I had one of my near-death experiences where I was coming back from going up to Yosemite with my girlfriend and her, her brother and her father. We went camping and um, I had had some kind of mystical experience in the morning at a lake that is at the base of the Half Dome Mountain. So I was feeling very kind of, I don't know, in an altered state. But anyway, on the way of driving back on the freeway, uh, something was wrong with one of my tires and I lost control of the car. And I was driving pretty fast. I was going 75 miles an hour. Wow. And I rolled the car on the freeway and it rolled on, across the freeway and, and, then rolled and then rolled into the center divider at very high speed. And I remember being in the car. I didn't have my seatbelt on and being thrown around. And the thing, come, the thought coming to me, go, oh, now I'm going to die. And it was such a neutral observation. But the very last second, I got thrown out of the car. And the car landed next to me, oh, a couple feet away from me. As I hit the ground, it crashed down next to me, upside down with the roof crashed in. So if I'd stayed and been in the car, I would have died. And but somehow I was, I survived that. And... Uh, my girlfriend, she was thrown maybe 40 feet. Wow. She was totally unhurt. Wow. And I had some minor injuries, but basically it was fine. But that changed something for me. Because when I came out of it, it was like a different me. Like somehow that experience of the car crash was convergent to my consciousness. I remember after the accident, they took me to some local hospital. I got a notebook and started writing, and I wrote like 40 pages about the day. Because somehow I knew this was a big change for me. And then within a week of that, I was I had to go to college. So I went, um, you know, I went to college and uh, came to Southern California, went to UCLA. And I had no idea why I was going to college, except that's what you did, if you didn't know what you wanted to do. And it was better than going to work. And uh, for a while at college, I was adapting pretty good. But more and more, I found that I was the stuff in college was not what I wanted to know. And I remember I came to towards the latter part of my freshman year in college, and we I had two finals to study for. And finals were a big deal because that was the main way your grade got determined. And right before I was going to study my finals, I found a book by Carlos Castaneda. Mm. And I started to read that book. And instead of studying for my finals, I stayed up all night reading that book. Yeah. And that just was one of those examples of the quest for awakening, the quest for myself was in, was in full for me and it continued and I ended up dropping out of college and then coming back and dropping out. But always there was this search, this quest for who am I? And uh, at one point, and I started to have more experiences of spontaneously sort of traveling out of my body and going up through the levels again, like I had when I was a kid, but this time with more awareness of each level. I remember going into place of was like total mind, like a universal mind, and suddenly being aware of so much information, going beyond that. And uh, this was going on, and I had nobody to explain it to me. So I figured, well, I'm going crazy. But then the experience would stop, and I would just be ordinary. And then um, I developed um, a back problem, which has been interesting in my life, because when I've in a sense, but most been in my growth, but also most, most challenged, my back would go into a very injured state. And so by then I was living up in Northern California, going uh, at the University of Santa Cruz, I was going to school. And 
I'd had the back problem for about a year. And I was looking at a billboard in a health food store, and I saw um, a listing for a healing festival somewhere in Arizona. And I looked at it, and something he said, you need to go. Well, I didn't, couldn't understand why, but I had to go. So, you know, I told my girlfriend at the time, I'm going to go to this. I looked up buses that could take me somewhere close to this place out in the at nowhere in Arizona. Took a bus. It took me partway there. Then I got out and hitchhiked. And ended up this place called Eden, Eden Arizona, Healing Waters. And uh, it was a healing festival. It was a... It was just one of those interesting things. I remember I, I stepped into this tent in the middle of the night when I finally got there. And I heard and something says something said, you're here. And I thought, I don't know what here meant. But I remember at that moment I looked up in the sky and a shooting star went by. And I thought, huh, maybe this is where something's going to change. Because my life had been nothing but suffering since that car accident. Because every day I was disturbed by the longing for something I didn't have. And so a couple days later, the healing festival, I saw somebody working with people who I was really impressed with. I don't know why. I asked him if he could work with me. And um, he, uh, he he said, nodded as he agreed to do it. And uh, it was interesting. He was a, had an Indian name, but he said he worked with the Christ. Well, I had none of that because I didn't grow up with any Christian stuff, but I didn't care. I wanted to, if I could get healed. Because at that time, I'd been told by doctors that my back would never recover, that I had such a bad scoliosis that I had to, I had to get used to living with the rest of my life. Anyway, he just looked in my eyes and said, you have to forgive yourself. And I don't know what he meant, but I started to cry and cry and cry. And pretty soon, my tears were like a, a child's tears. And pretty soon, it was like a baby crying. And then suddenly, I was somewhere before I was a baby. And uh, the process went on, and it was a strange thing because there were about a thousand people at this healing festival, and he's working on me this sort of lawn section in the middle where everybody would gather. And while he was working on me, all these people came back for this big event they were supposed to have, like a convergence together and the thing. And so I'm in the, he's in the middle of working on me there, and some people came to help him. And there's maybe a thousand people around in a circle, and they all started to sing, like sing and pray. And I don't know, the experience came. It was just like suddenly it was over. I remember sort of getting up, and there was a woman there. I don't know who she was. She took something off her neck. It was like a a blue cord with a red clay heart on it. She put it on me. I think she kissed me on the cheek or something. And then I kind of stood up, and my consciousness was so changed. I was, I felt one with everything. The trees, the rocks, the buildings. And, uh, and I didn't know what to make, what to call this, but I thought, well, he works with the Christ. Maybe this is the Christ. Because I feel this immense connection to all things. And at that moment... I remember very clearly inside of myself saying to God, said, I want to do for others what's just been done for me. And I offered my life to God, to the Spirit, to be an instrument of this opportunity that had been mine. So that was it. And so I was pretty changed after that, but I still didn't know what to do or where to go or I was still lost. And now the pain I had before about the mystical thing was tripled because as time went on, I got more involved in life. I wasn't in that same altered state of bliss. I knew it was real, but now it made it worse because I wasn't having it. Whereas before it was like, I knew I was hungry for something. Now I knew what I was hungry for, but I didn't know how to sustain it. So I was in great despair and I went back to Santa Cruz. Actually before that, I went and lived, went in the mountains, traveled around for a couple months, just being crazy, trying to wake up and just, and just driving just, just a little bit out of my mind. And, uh, I met a man in Santa Cruz who was a healer and a clair, very clairvoyant. So I asked if he'd work with me and he was working with me and he just looked at me at one point and he said, he said, I don't think you can have a teacher on this life. 
I didn't, I wasn't asking him to have a teacher. I wasn't asking for a teacher. I just didn't want my pain to stop. I wanted to get back to that bliss. He said, I don't, you have the, by the color in your aura, I don't think anybody could really work with you here. And then he said, well, there is a guy down in Los Angeles. He runs this group called MSIA. His name is John Roger Hinkins. He's a very, very high being. He said, somehow I think you'll hit it off with him. So I didn't know what to make of it, but I knew Los Angeles. I'd gone to school there. So anyway, I went down there to try to see him. Of course, he wasn't available. And then, <laughs> but I heard they were doing something called an insight seminar. So uh, I went to take that and heard they had something called, I didn't hear, it took a few months and one day somebody mentioned something called discourses. So I did that. And I liked the teachings, but what, the teachings were fine. But what I really liked is I liked the people around it. They felt very ordinary and real to me. Because I had, by, from about the time of 17 on, I had gone to see gurus and Zen masters and yogis everywhere. Anybody who was anybody who I could get to, I, it was almost like I felt like, um, are you my mom? Are you my mom? Yeah. yeah. Like I was just... That book, yeah. Yeah, and I would, you know, and I was impressed with someone. I was impressed with Swami Muktananda, but I knew it wasn't. I knew it didn't have what I needed. Anyway, finally, I went to an insight seminar, and uh, the man John Roger was in the back of the room, and there were people kind of lined up to see him, and I was always very shy, introverted, but I felt, well, I've got to go meet this person. So I walked up, and uh, he looked up, and I guess he read my name tag, and he said, hello, Michael, and held out his hand, and he said, glad to have you with us. And he looked at my eyes, and I thought, oh, this is great, and shook, and I, was, and I just walked away. That was it. And I walked back to, to sit in my seat for the, the Inside Awareness Seminar, and as I was coming to sit down, the, an immense form of light came upon me, and the face of Jesus Christ appeared to me, except it was as big as the whole room. And I was just so overwhelmed by it. And as I sat in my chair, I heard that a voice come from that presence. I guess it was Jesus, or that was my imagination, because back then I was still doubting everything. And it said, you can let it all go now. And something in me said, okay. And next thing you know, I fell over in the lap of the lady next to me and just became just gone. Like I was aware of the body, but I could not control it at all. I was in an ecstasy that I can't describe. They ended up picking me up and carrying me out and carrying me to the back of the room. And for the five-day seminar, I basically had to be carried around to anything involved walking. But that moment, I knew I had found a place where I could get answers. And so, I don't know if this is why people wanted to, were here to talk about this, but this is how I got to where it was. Just step by step by step, doubting, questioning, and using the mental background I'd been given, which is to doubt and check things out. And uh, because of my earlier experience, I was really drawn to healing, because I've been healed. And by the way, when I had, after my experience were in the desert where I'd had the healing, I went to the doctors and they took an x-ray and my spine was perfect. Wow. I went from scoliosis so bad, you'll, you'll have to live with this rest of your life till to perfect alignment. So, so the combination of finding John Roger, finding his group, and finding a place where I felt I could focus to try and get more answers, and my call to healing kind of set me in motion in my life. And so I continued my spiritual work and growing and uh, continued the process of developing as a healer. And... Once you like decided to be a healer and, and to actually do that as, I don't know what you want to call it, your job um, or your work, your right. life's work, um, practically, what was, how did you start that? Like, what were you doing in a session at that time? And well, I started off, I went to massage school right after my first experience in the desert, because I figured, well, that's the way to at least touch people. And so I started doing massage, but I kept finding 
that I put my hands on people and things would start happening. Like I would just put my hands on people and what I would do is sometimes I just put my hands on you off in their head. And then I would just go into this place of quiet inside and try and reach to to Jesus, to the Christ, because that is what I attributed my healing to. And I would do this and people would start to have all these experiences. They'd start to talk about things. And when I came down to Los Angeles, I started to work with a lot of people who were involved with John Rogers' group, which was called MSIA. And many of these people have been doing this work for a long time. Well, at that time, I didn't see anything. I was just loving them and doing this touch thing. But things would start happening. The bodies would sometimes bounce up and down from the energy. I remember one person broke my massage table. They wow. bounced so hard, they, they broke it. Wow. And they would describe angels and they could, sometimes they couldn't even walk out of the place, my apartment, they were literally like, I'd have to escort them. Wow. And uh, they would talk about that for days afterwards, they were in just this state of reverie. But I honestly can't say I understood what I was doing. I was just kind of following my intuition and touching people in the ways I was guided to. And most of it was just making it up. And it wasn't, but I, so I couldn't take credit. It was interesting to me because every time I went to work on somebody, the voice would come into my head and doubt that anything was going to happen this time because I didn't know what I was doing. And this voice that came in and doubted what I was doing was with me for at least two or three years, every single time I worked on somebody. And something special happened every time. And in my mind, I was convinced nothing would happen, which was an odd thing. But after a while, you know, when you see something happen hundreds of times, you finally realize, well, something's going on. And I also met somebody around that time who was doing work with consciousness, using muscle testing to try and figure out what's going on in people's consciousness that could be contributing to their problems. And I was fascinated by that. I was very mental, so I liked that idea. And so I learned about that too and kind of became best friends with this person who was doing it and learned a lot from them about, well, what happens if we look at the issues in our consciousness that may be causing our problems? And so I added that. And I liked that part because it was more mental. The yeah. other thing was, was just, well, I'm just loving you. And uh, so that appealed to me. And I, I started to have some interesting experiences that just things would come to me that I worked with somebody then who was a longtime student of John Rogers. And uh, he came to see me. And as we started to work, he started to cry. And he said, it's you. He said, I, I know it's you. And I said, what do you mean? He says, John Roger told me about you in my light study. I guess light studies were a thing John Roger used to do where he'd talk to people about their life and what they were going to do and their karma. And he said, when he was doing my light study, he paused and got very quiet and actually got teary. And he said, there's... He said, there's somebody with us here today. He's not with us physically yet, but he will come. And when he comes, he will have the ability of healing that if he just thinks about somebody getting healed, they get healed. And he told me this person, John Rogers said this person was one of Christ's disciples. So, and this person was convinced that was me. Well, for me, with my limited sense of myself. It seemed out, it seemed crazy, although there was a lot of amazing things happening when I worked with people. But it also, but I had said to wonder, well, maybe, maybe there is a plan to this. Maybe as much as I keep feeling like I'm stumbling into things, maybe there is a guiding force. And then around that time, I became I, in the group of the MSA group I was studying with. They also had an option to become a minister which was a, was a kind of a process where you get extra support to do service. And since I was doing healing, it seemed like a thing to do. So I started to try to do it. And at the end of the, the ordination, as they would call it, they would, there would be a blessing from the Spirit. And I thought, well, I was interested in that. And so when I went to get that done, at the, towards the end of my ordination, 
there was something there where it talked about a, there was a, was a special blessing placed upon my joy that it would awaken the spontaneity and the brilliance of my inner knowing. Well, I thought that sounds cool, but it didn't mean much to me because I was really, I was so in my mind. I, I wouldn't have called myself intuitive at all. But after I got that blessing, all of a sudden I start to have awarenesses of what, the people that came in. I'm not of what awarenesses of what their problem was, but why their problem. And so that so then as a healer, I started to work more with consciousness, because I was interested in it before, but I was more it was more like a scientific. This time it was more like the opposite. The less I tried to know, the more I knew. And so this went on, and I then back then I started teaching workshops, not because of not big workshops. Sometimes sometimes five or six people or 10, a few of them were like 30 people. And I would just make something up. Sometimes I didn't even know what the workshop was going to be the day of. And I said, well, let's do this. But people seemed to like it. And, and I found an amazing thing. One day I, I recorded one because people said, you should record this stuff because later you could maybe do something with it. And I remember the old cassettes and stuff. And so I re recorded it, and I never listened to it. I forgot about it. And one day I saw it, and I thought, oh, I never did listen to that. I wonder what, well, wonder even how I sound. So I played and started to listen to it. I didn't like listening to my voice. Yeah, who does? And I hated that. <laughs> so I was in that process of listening, and then I noticed something that kind of blew my mind. About every third or fourth sentence out of my mouth, I would say, I don't know. And as soon as I'd say that, the next sentence out of my mouth would be the answer for the person. And I listened to this and it went on over and over again. I would go, well, you know, I don't know. Da 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 da. And I don't know. And there's the answer. And I was so struck, but I said, well, that is so weird. I go, I really go, I don't know, which is really, what's really true. I, I was admitting, I don't know. And suddenly I had all this information. And I suddenly realized this is the secret. The secret is confessing that I don't know and stop pretending that I know and stop even trying to know and just open myself. And I, without my realizing it, I had been doing that. And the people were thinking the information was really accurate. A lot of times they'd tell stuff that I had no sense of it meant anything to people. And so in understanding that that was really what it's about, in a sense, I really work to cultivate what I would call the, the I don't know or the divine unknowing. And so that grew and magnified in me and so that went on and continued. Now I'd started this when I was really young. I was 21. I was, I was trying to make my living as a healer. So years went on and I learned and growed and I studied different techniques and approaches. But I got certified in things like NLP and stuff. But I never could use it because that's very mental. And the thing that really worked for me is that I don't know, which is just getting out of the way. And so that whole process continued and worked, and I grew and, you know, became more known and traveled around the world, traveled to different countries, worked all over South America. I worked in Australia, worked in Europe, 18 cities in the United States. And uh, just over time, you just get better at what you do. Meanwhile, I think my own attunement to spirit increased just by participating in the teachings and that John Roger did. And at one point, uh, maybe 10 years in, one point John Roger had brought me up in front of one, one of the groups and had me work with people in front of the group. And he, he, apparently he was pretty happy with it. And I think I was in Los Angeles. Oh, that point had probably been around the MSA group, maybe 12 years, 13 years. And he, he, uh, he basically what's interesting is I had a dream with him, and, and I had many dreams with him. I probably had three or four dreams a week for, with him for 20 years. It just seemed like he was always in there, my head talking to me and teaching me. And, uh, but in a dream, he came up and he said, basically sat in front of me and said, I want you to work with me. And so I thought, well, that's an interesting dream. The next day, I went to a workshop where he was. And I sat down, he came, walked up and sat in front of me just like in the dream and said, I want you to work with me. And it was exactly what happened. So for then, I had a different 
relationship with him. He was my teacher, but I was also somebody who was supporting him to work for his health and to work with things that would help him both um, help other people and do his work, to do his work, but also for his own health. And that became one of the most advantageous relationships of my life in terms of my learning. Uh, not because he was there teaching me particularly, but to try and help him, I had to be able to look into things that I would never look because the challenges he dealt with were very different. And so it became a journey of awakening into the multidimensional nature of our consciousness and all the hidden ways that we can be blocked from the expression and the fulfillment of life that we're capable of. And that went on for years and uh, working. And at one point, I had a very profound, I had a lot of profound experiences that there was a magical time. But I remember I had a really profound dream with John Roger. And um, he, in the dream, he just brought me up in front of the group and started to tell everybody about me. He said, he said if he just thinks about somebody, they start to get healed. He started talking about it and he said things that were kind of over the top. He said, I was a healing avatar, that I was an avatar of healing. And uh, which, of course, was kind of mind-blowing to me. And when I asked him about it, he said, yeah, that was all true. And then probably, oh, two, three weeks after that dream, for the first time, he put me up on stage with him to work with groups, which then became another source of growth for me to work with him for about maybe 12 years after that, where we just, where I would not only just be supporting him to work, but he would get me up there to work with the people with him and we worked together. And that was rewarding and fun. And it was also very, it was very synergetic because our consciousnesses seemed to really work, work well together. Because I was such a doubter, it really was hard for me to make progress sometimes because I, I kept going, but how do I know? How do I know? But when I was looking at things together with him and we were seeing the same thing, it was very validating. Well, we, it was like, I may be wrong, but if I'm wrong, we're wrong. And I, I didn't rule that out. But I had seen him do so many amazing things and demonstrate so many times just how connected he was and how much clarity he had in his guidance that it gave me a lot of reassurance that helped me move forward. And we did a lot of work. We traveled and did, uh, did the work in different places. And it was, it was a great time. It was a very challenging time, just in terms of my life. But I grew up a lot in my work, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. I'm so grateful for him. In a strange way, I'm so grateful that he worked with me, but also that I was allowed to work with him and to really assist him to keep going out there year after year to help people. So that's kind of my story of it, and it just kind of kept evolving and growing. Now it's been, now I'm in my 40th year of working professionally with people. Wow. So it's kind of been so long I've been doing it that it's hard to remember when I wasn't. Yeah. And it's so second nature that I don't. And the funny thing is, many times I still go in there and I don't know what I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, I never know what I'm going to do because this formula is the same. So I'm grateful, you know, and I, one of the things I learned about John Roger is that's really how he worked. He didn't try to know ahead of time. He just tried to be really present. And I said, that's, I, that's really what I had been doing was working. So it was a validation and it helped me give up a lot of my mental questing. Along the way, a lot of my mentalness kind of disappeared. I became very quiet inside. But it doesn't seem like you fought the doubt it seems like you use the doubt i mean i think a lot of people they try to like get rid of doubt or think doubt's bad and you know if something like that and to me part of your story is the demonstration of actually using the doubt to to prove it i think the doubt slowed me down at times because i would i'd be so hesitant to try new things without some kind of evidence however i think it really did serve me because it because it, i really did everything I looked at, and I looked at a lot of stuff that was very bizarre to me, 
different and out of the box with the criteria of does it work? And that was a big thing I gleaned with my time with John Roger. We, in the work we did, we didn't really care what we heard or what we saw. It was, did it change things? Did it work? Yeah, and it'd get wild. I mean, having been there for a lot of it, it definitely, I mean, I remember the the one where we were doing, Jer wasn't well, and we were actually at your house, um, and we were doing like a, I don't know, 12-hour session or something right. of clearing, and a lot of it was focused around, was it, I don't know how to say, Krakatawa or something well, like that? Well, there was a big, a big, um, he was so unwell. He was yeah. so sick. The question is, do we go to the hospital or not when we leave here? Yeah. And finally, I was, I went into the, I don't know, and... I was told, her very clearly inside, that there was a huge demonic form that was coming out of the earth, and that he, John Roger, was connected to trying to, let's say, control that or stop it, or in somehow so that this thing could be taken, in a sense, out of the frequency of the earth, that the, the frequency of the earth was being changed, and he was, he was being used to that. But it was so massive and overwhelming that it was, it was causing his body terrible, terrible, terrible pain. And I said, well, how do we get rid of something like this? Because I'd never seen anything that big, uh, energy field. And they said, call it Krakatoa. So I thought, okay. And um, through the light and through the spare world and Jesus Christ came and they pulled the thing off. And it was so interesting when they pulled it off him because if we had looked at him and we say, well, if on a scale of 10, 10 is you need to be under morphine at the hospital right now to be able to stand your life because the pain is so excruciating. He was probably 9.9. Oh, yeah, he was, he was not just doing whimpering. Well. He was in, and he was pretty tough and stoic, but he was, he was, he was, he teary eyed. He was in agony. Yeah. And the thing came off him, and I remember he took like one big deep breath and went, <sighs> and he kind of looked up, and he was all better. It was that fast. Oh yeah, and I and think we got up to got go. Got up and went to we went, went to up, eat. I went, think went out to eat or, or something. Yeah, went out to eat or whatever. And then I remember I'm on the TV. I turned on yeah. the TV. You're watching TV, and of course it's by then it's I'm getting my kids up or whatever I was doing, and I'm watching TV, and then they're stuck and. Says it's late breaking news. There's been a huge earthquake yeah. in Indonesia, and uh, the nearest, nearest landmass is the island of Krakatoa. Yeah, and we were, we're Jerry's, I think, watching it on TV right. and eating and going, This Krakat is that's what, what we were doing. So, with. somehow, his, this, and that's what a lot of people didn't understand about John Rogers, that his consciousness was so open that this, it was used to help deal with things like that. Yeah. So that was one of the one of the amazing things that happened with him. But there were a lot of those things. Yeah. That's one of and the most that dramatic. That led to the that massive tsunami in Thailand. And yeah, and all those people dying. I mean, it was just, it was so. It was pretty major. And, it and if I hadn't been there, I mean, it's hard to you know you talk about this and it just sounds so out there. I know. It, it really does. No, but if you weren't right there in the room, it'd be like I would probably doubt it too. Yeah. But it was it, it was just one more example of yeah, just how something amazing. And so yeah, it's kind of so to me <clears throat> my approach with working with John Roger really which was easy because it was really because of my background really fit called it has to work. And I don't care if uh if we're talking about UFOs, I don't care what it is, does it bring the change? Does it bring the healing? Does it bring this? And that was the criteria was always workability. That was always the criteria. It didn't really matter what it was. Like, and by the next time you work, the, whatever was the past thing, I mean, by the time you walk out of the room, it's just kind of over gone. and gone. And, and whatever it was, as long as you're have, you know, feeling better and whatever that is lifted, to me, that was the... That was the proof in the pudding. That was the approach, and I've, I've stayed with that. It's workability. And uh, it was wonderful, though, but, but also because of his ability to see energy and to see the auras and see subtle stuff. Because I, a lot of those abilities had come to me, but I was very questioning of them. But then I could, we could often go, and I, and I could, what does it look like? And he would often do that to me. We'd work on somebody and say, what do you see here? 
I started striving and he would kind of nudge me along so I could see things in new ways. And uh, so it was very collegial in some ways too. Yeah. But it was, it was a privilege to support somebody who was doing so much for me and for other people. And uh, a big part of my, I think it was like 23, 24 years, I was pretty much working with him pretty constantly when it was one for periods of it. There were periods yeah. where we was like almost every day. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I got yeah. where I am. And, uh, well, it's a really interesting story. Um, you know, maybe to shift gears a little bit, get a little advice from you for the people out there. Uh, one thing I've been noticing lately is that people seem to be pretty upset about changes that we're experiencing in the world and changes going on in, in all sorts of areas, in yeah. so many areas of the world. And um, people can get upset, they can get polarized and all those things. And so from your perspective, I mean, what do you have any um, thing that can help people either see it differently or how they respond in, internally mm. to so they're not so dragged down by the whole thing or right. upset? I think it's important to try and get a, above it and look at it more from a perspective that first of all starts by thinking of this as a school. So that I would say that God created all of this and then God, and then wanting to really know what it would be like to exist in all of this as an individuated separate form. God created an individuation of itself. We often think of this as the soul. The soul is individuated God. And so we're down here as individuations of God, helping God experience and know and understand what it's like to deal in this a reality with these parameters. And so that being the case, then everything that's going on from the stuff we look at and go, oh no, or oh yes, is somehow woven into God's purpose of learning, God's purpose of, of having experience and having understanding come from the experience. So, for example, if we look at some of the big things that we're dealing with on the, in, in the world right now, and in, let's say, in the world, and so first of all, we could talk about what Edgar Casey talked about in, I think, 1968 or 69, he said Atlantis would rise. And they did find, by that time, they found the road, Bimini Road, going out, I don't know, six miles or 11 miles out into the ocean. And so it didn't necessarily mean Atlantis rose in terms of uh, they found all the buildings. But if people were really to research, they realize over the last um, about 50 years now, since 1968, they found ruins of ancient civilizations under the ocean all over the place. They've just found, I think, three, three more pyramids in the Caribbean off the coast of Cuba, about uh, 15 years ago, they discovered the ruins of a city in 1,800 feet of water with pyramids and sphinxes. Apparently, um, the U.S. government had known about it since the 60s because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Their submarines were there. And you start, and they've just found, uh, like I think it's now three pyramids off the Azores. And um, in... Uh, after the big earthquake in 2004, um, they discovered the ruins of two cities off the coast of Western India, both of them bigger than Manhattan, made of stone and wow. 140 feet of water. Wow. Um, so this is all known. They're just, what they're doing is they're finding the footprint of the world before. The world before was the civilization that was here before, sometimes referenced as Atlantis. But let's just say another time epoch where the technology and the cultures of those times were very sophisticated and were uh, that they had found ways to work with power sources and to power very high civilization. And from my memory or sense or whatever you want to call it of that, we're still not where they were. We're getting closer. And there's just evidence of everywhere we look. They keep finding these huge buildings. They keep finding pyramids. They've been two pyramids in the world now. Um, 
the big one in Bosnia, which is the biggest pyramid in the world that most people here in the United States don't know about, even though there's three to 400,000 tourists in Europe that go there every year. Um, but it's 150 feet taller, taller than the Pyramid of Giza. Hmm. They, just, they just think it was hillside because it, it's been so overgrown. But when they did carbon dating on it, they, I think they sent it to three or four of the top labs in Europe. They all came out with the same conclusion that the, it was a pyramid built of cement that they'd actually poured it, wow. a, a cement more sophisticated than any in the world today. Wow. And that the carbon dating suggested that the outer blocks were about 25,000 years old and that the, some of the inner blocks w were 29,000 years old. That's incredible. And so, and then to go with that, the, there's a big pyramid that has been known about in Indonesia, and in the last year or two, the carbon dating has come back 25,000 years old. So you start to realize 25,000 years ago, people were building massive pyramids. The pyramid in Bosnia, interesting enough, has energy fields coming off the top of it that can be measured, and that defy the laws of physics. They actually get stronger as they move away from the pyramid. Yeah. What they're getting back into is, oh, the use of energy to power a civilization, which was a worldwide civilization. And so what happens in... I think Tesla may have done some work on that too. Tesla the, was tapping into that same power, the power of pulling energy out of the earth. Yeah, and then you don't even need cables to transmit it and no, things of that nature. You don't need it at all. And... You just set up forms of receivers, and the energy is drawn to your receiver. And he, um, he was definitely bringing this back. But when we start to discover the remnants of these things, it's telling us that the consciousness of that is coming back. And so what we are is we are in, we can understand what we're going through, particularly on the technological, energetic level, is we're revisiting the Atlantean experience. And in revisiting that experience, we're we're revisiting collectively on this planet the learning opportunities and the challenge opportunities of that, which we see called, look at all the blessings of energy and technology, and then you look at Fukushima in Japan and go, yeah, but we've, there's, there's a swimming pool full of radioactive water dripping into the ocean every day, yeah. and they have no, have no idea how they're ever going to stop that. Yeah. And, there, and there's proof now of radiation from Japan has raised the radiation level of the oceans all the way over in California. And so what do we do in the face of all that to well, have a, a good attitude or whatever well, you want to call or, it? Or create new technologies that help to clean it up. Sure. So, but we're in that dance collectively on the planet. So one of the big things we're dealing with now is this extraordinary movement of technology, which is changing everything. Yeah. And it's opening up the social lines between people, which is exactly these things went on in Atlantis. And how we handle it is the real key. The Atlanteans did not do well with it. And a lot of the end of their society and civilization was based upon, uh, let's just say, creating energy fields that were too powerful and were not managed properly and caused severe disruption to the natural order of the world. We're doing a lot of that now, too. So this is one of the big challenges, opportunities of, of where we are. So if we step back from it all and go, oh, no, oh, bad, oh, but this is nice, instead of realizing it's challenge opportunity time. So that would be, we could, I would call that a karmic cycle we're in. And so that's cycled back to us. And you could watch it happen. And, and it was interesting when I was back in around 2001 or two, I think it was 2002, was meditating one day and suddenly I was aware that planetary-wise, there's a huge opening of something off of the coast of Belize, that there was an energy center of the Earth, we could almost call it like a chakra of the Earth that was opening up. And I remember asking at the time, what is that about? And they just said, it's reopening the Atlantean energy. And I forgot about it. And then within a year, they found the city off the coast of Cuba, and I said, yeah. well, wait a minute, this is, timing is too perfect. So that's a big part of our lesson. Now, if we look at the United States and the effect on the world that our current situation is happening, what's going on, the United States is in a very interesting place because the United States is, is a place where we're very much revisiting the karma of the Roman Empire. Look at our money. What symbols do we have on it? Look at our system of government. Who did we model? 
the Romans. Everybody says, oh, the Greeks and democracy. No, <laughs> our, we're, we're a republic. Yeah, a republic. We're built exactly upon that. And so what we've had happening is that we're dealing with Roman karma, and now we're getting the stage of starting to ex the expansion of the power of that and having mm -hmm. sort of a at least an economic empire and more than that, military. And what are we getting? We're doing a lot of the same things the Romans did, this massive... Seems to be going faster than everything's the going. Romans. It's going faster, but it's the same lessons. Sure. And we've had two of the Caesars have re-embodied as leaders in this country. And there wouldn't necessarily be, you wouldn't necessarily go, that's the Caesar I would have chosen. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they had to learn if they could do it again. Well, yes, or we, or we had to learn how to deal with how to cope with that. Yeah. And so we're in that period right now. And so you're seeing the the Romans where they shifted away from the challenge. You know, the challenge the Romans had was they wanted to maintain their republic, but then the movement came to the autocracy or the, the Caesars, and somewhere they ended up with a blend. Of really being run by the Caesars, but but and it says run by the Caesars or no ruled by the Caesars and run by the Senate or run by the the institutions of government, and we may be going towards that now too. We certainly have those that are trying to do that. So there's yeah. a saying, you know, I think it's a University of Santa Monica saying where they say how you relate to the issue is the issue. So this is the, the opportunity of our time. So instead of going oh no no we have to go okay. School's in session for us. Why did this all happen with the, with the Romans? Well, one of the main things is the Romans got very, very prosperous. And they developed a very large, lightly educated class of people that were, had, had by, by their sheer numbers, had a lot of influence, and, and controlling those people was a big part of an influence. It was a big part of how someone would keep power, maintain power, and sort of the mob. Yeah, there was definitely a mob. I just finished a book on Cicero's life, which was right at that turning point yeah. in Rome of oh. between the Caesars and... Right, and exactly. And so that's exactly what we're, we're looking at here. Um, the uneducated electorate in this country where half the people don't vote yeah about things that and interesting most of the people that don't vote are the people who are most affected negatively by what's happening yeah there are a lot of parallels financially too just how you know and the expense of a large military and oh, we're totally, all of those things were we're totally in that so debasing currency like it's just the parallels are pretty astounding if you read history yes and so when you see that and then you have which is neat because you can understand what i'm talking about you go huh yeah there's so many parallels well it's not by accident it's because mm. what can we learn this time collectively and individually but as individuals we ought to be asking okay where's my learning and where am I called to participate? If we fall into the emotion of right and wrong, good and bad, we can actually miss what's going on. But if we can really understand, oh, we're in a larger cycle here. Where did the Romans, so we go, where did the Romans fall? Sure, where were their mistakes? Yeah. Oh, how are we doing that? How am I as an individual maybe participating in that? How could I change or help I encourage other people to change? And I think there's just so many things going on out there that it seems that people just feel are out of their control. And, and in a lot of ways, they are out of their control. Um, and I think just learning how to relate to that in a way that just doesn't ruin your life every day is a very positive thing. For and, but a difficult thing. Very. So that would be one of the things that hopefully we will learn from this. Because maybe that's what we're supposed to learn from this. To learn how to live in a world where we have much less control. Yeah. And we say, well, I can't control the world, but maybe I can control my response. And so and I think that calls us all more to be more centered and to do more to keep our center. And uh, these are, but those stand out as quick things that go, oh, when I start to see all this from that understanding. Yeah. I go, well, wait a minute, if I'm seeing it from that understanding, well, then there, there is a divine design. There is a the plan here. You know, we often would think, well, if God was really 
involved in all this. You wouldn't have this, you wouldn't have that. But I don't think that's so. I think God allows a lot of things that we individually we think God wouldn't allow because there's harm or suffering to people. But God seems to have this big enough overview to realize the soul's not suffering. Even if the body is, the body's temporary. The soul's learning. That a lot of things are allowed. My idealistic conception of God wouldn't be that he, God would allow those things. But my experience of God is God's allowed a lot. But God also allows us to act to change. Mm -hmm. So God allows things to play out, and then God allows us to, to see what we can do to make it play out in a better way. So it's not a fatalistic awareness to me, it's a, but it is a call to, act, to awareness first, and then a call to action secondly. Yeah. And it seems that one of, in your life, you talked a lot about in your story about just the service aspect of it, that you, that's really kind of what at that moment where you transformed it and had that healing, it was like, I just want to serve. Um, how do you see the service as part of, you know, is, is that a solution to what we're dealing with here is, is serving others and alleviating their conditions? Yes, but I think the great service, the most important service here, is the service of, of opening awareness. I, I look on the planet beyond all the stuff we're talking about, is that there's a fundamental shift uh, going on for the planet, which is a shift of you know, when we say how you relate to the issue is the issue, is how we relate to everything. Uh, metaphysically, I look at it that the Earth for most of its existence or history here, which is into billions of years now, has been very much working and operating under a premise of uh, an eye for an eye. A karmic law, the law of Moses, called a lot of different things. And within all that, it seems that for this this earth experience and for each of us as individuals coming into experience with this earth experience there was a mandate that everything had to be balanced so they talk about to the last farthing that so when people talk about karma and the process of working karma it's always about the balancing of karma so when people say well I want to get free of the earth, I want to finish my lives, I want to go back to God, but I have to work out my karma. So then the emphasis of life is, is, is about, called balancing karma, which I understand because I think there's a lot of merit to that approach. However, I think there's a different approach that's being offered into the world. Um, the way I have it inside from what I've been able to see and gather was that this approach of making ba balance the absolute must in existence was leading to an experience in this world that was falling short of what God was looking for. God set this all up not for balance. God set this all up for learning. And so people were having experiences that were bogging them down. And, and, and for, I give, tell the story often a way to exemplify it. I say, so suppose you there, Nat, you incarnate, let's say, eight or 900 years ago in Mongolia, and you're a male, which that means you're either fighting Genghis Khan or fighting with Genghis Khan, because every man there is, you can't, you, you're on one side or another, and Genghis Khan wins out, and his guy, and you're with, you happen to be with Genghis Khan, and you're a good fighter, and you're lucky, and great on a horse, and you live a pretty long life, and by you get, you get to the end of your life, and it's called, well, that's been a great life, lots of victories, and wars, and rapes, and pillaging, and man, I killed 500 people. Yeah. So now you're sitting there and called, okay, you killed 500 people, well, under karmic law, guess what, get ready. You're gonna get killed 500, 500 times. times. And, I, and an eye for an eye, so the 500 times has to be pretty much exactly the way you did it. So you start to come back in, and you're getting head lopped off, or you're getting killed here, and but along the way, there's growth going on inside of awareness about this whole thing. Something you realize is this whole violence thing, killing thing, this, because I have the force and the power to take what I want, somehow that's just not right in me anymore. It's just, just not sitting right. Well, under the old plan, it doesn't matter. It says 500 killings, you get killed 500 times. We don't even have to look at that. 
but there's under this other way of looking at it, they, which um, would look at it more like they say, well, you know, Matt seems to be really making a change in there. Well, this time we put him back into the world and he takes his next body. Let's put it in a situation where he could the, have the opportunity to take what he wants by force. See what happens. And so that time comes for you and you get to that point and there it is. All you got to do is reach out and take what you want. Nobody can stop you. You're more powerful. If they try and stop you, you can physically, violently stop them from stopping you. And you come to that point and maybe the urge to take what you want comes upon you, but something else goes, no, this is not right for me. This is not who I am. And you pass. Well, under this other approach, that choice you just made is looked at from a higher level, we'll call it the spirit, and said, he's learned that. Yeah, but he's got another 495 deaths coming to him. Yeah. I said, well, yes, he does. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to let him have those deaths in his dreams. So maybe the next year, year and a half, he's going to have, he's not going to sleep that well. He's going to be busy at night. He's going to dream, dream he died. And we'll let that be a balance. And we're also going to put him in positions where he'll do a bunch of service for people. Some of those people that he'll be serving with people who were harmed by what he did. And we'll, we'll get it balanced out. But the priority is learning and moving forward. It's grace. It's grace. One of the things John Roger once said is that evil is unnecessary experience. Yeah. So for him to have to go and get killed 495 times where he's not learning anything from it other than he's balancing out the karma is an evil because it's delaying him fulfilling God's purpose for him. Moving up to the next level and the next learning. And exactly. And so this other option that we're talking about, I often call the Christ option or the Christ opportunity. And for me, that's really uh, what happened is God decided this particular plan of creation really wasn't giving God what God wanted, which was the learning and the growing. Souls were getting bogged down here for tens of thousands of years, life after life, kind of doing the same thing. It's like, it's like, you say you're trying to clean up a room, but there's so it's so dirty and there's like paint everywhere. Yeah. That everywhere you step, you put more paint. It's like there was no respite. There's no. It was like the whole thing became about balancing, um, balancing karma in the sense of without the learning, the learning was lost. So my point of view is that the biggest transformation, the biggest service on the planet, is the service of of waking awareness and of learning and particularly learning other ways to do things and supporting people to choose that approach of the learning. And we don't have to talk about it in the name of Christ or this, because it could apply with Buddha too or other things too. It's just, but it's a different approach. It's a different orientation, which automatically pulls us into our shared commonality with, all, with everyone else who's also here as a student. And, you know, many of the th things that Jesus taught, you know, when you've done it the least of these, you've done it unto me. Yeah, that's powerful. And people so, really follow or think of that. Yeah. And so I think these things, but I, I think that what's happening is, particularly in the last couple of thousand years since Jesus physicalized, and in my perception is that in his physicalizing, there was a, a shifting onto the planet, a greater access to this opportunity of God to put learning first and learning be the way. And with that learning, that also opened the door for the power of forgiveness and grace, which really saying, yeah, you killed all those people based on the, the accounting here. It says you got to, you get killed 495 more times, but grace is extended. We'll handle it another way. Uh, forgive it all, you know, go and sin no more, which means learn from it. Yeah. And on we go in your learning. Yeah. So I like that deal. That's a great deal. It's it's the deal of the century, a deal of the decade, a deal of the millennium, <laughs> the deal of the lifetimes. Yes, the deal of the <laughs> lifetimes. It is the deal of the lifetimes. And so yeah. I think the highest service, in many ways, is that because you know there's a lot of things we could go out and say, well, there's poor people, so we'll go feed them and try and eradicate poverty. And I think yes, I think that's important, in, in, in as we can, because as we do that, then you know there's a sort of an old idea that you can't really talk to teach men much about the higher things if they, if they can't, if can't they're hungry eat, all yeah. the time or, the, you know, they have no water. So I, I think there is, and I think in helping 
uh, others in the world do that, it extends in us our compassion and our commonality, which I think is also a big part of the change in this world. But I think we're in a, in a time of shifting in the world and that the, let's say the paradigm of the world is changing and changing more and more into that one that I would call the Christ opportunity. Yeah. But it's very in sync with a lot of groups approach. So I would think it could apply to the Hindus and certainly to the Buddhists too. I think it's even if you looked into the Quran, there's stuff about that. Yeah. It's, it's an inherent thing that we all know. But for some people, it's, it's they're more able to live in it and other people aren't yet. So I think the biggest service to me is in service to that. Because I think that's going to make the most difference in the long run. Well, I think that that is um, a great way of approaching it, approaching what's going on. And I also think it's a great point for us to end on, on that note. Thinking that myself. And um, thank you so much, Michael, for, for being on the show. Sure. And where can people get to you? A website? Uh, we've got like three websites now, but if they went to Awake to Love... Awake to love. They can get anything. Uh, Michael Hayes. They could probably track us down, and uh, we do workshops, and obviously I work with individuals, and uh, there's a lot of videos on YouTube of yeah. prior workshops and little excerpts of just the the stuff that we're doing. Yeah, you, you guys are very busy, and you're always doing something. So definitely go to his site and see what what the next thing is if you you want to touch in and get more of what we've been doing here that would be neat all right thanks so much michael thanks for having me bye-bye if you'd like to get more of what you've heard here you can go to transcend.online and sign up to the mailing list and see my blog that's transcend.online